Singing is a powerful way to encourage one another. We get to preach the truth of Christ to one another. And in in a way, we remind each other when we come together on the Lord's Day that we're not alone. Sometimes we could feel alone. Sometimes we could feel alone. Perhaps you live in a very difficult situation, even at home. Perhaps you're living with non-believers. These are hard times, particularly if you're watching the news and seeing the things that are taking place. But this is our opportunity to huddle together, to encourage one one another through preaching, but also to singing about Christ with one another. We'll be at Mark chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. But as you're turning there, I'll give us an introduction. Jesus' homecoming. He's coming home. He's coming back home to Nazareth. And homecomings are oftentimes uh, celebratory. You know, we have homecomings at in our schools, our universities, our high schools. Oftentimes it's a time of celebration where we could see how each other's been doing, how, how someone has left and come back home to see how they've developed. It's a special time. Now Jesus goes back home with the twelve. And this is a different type of homecoming. This is not the celebratory homecoming that you may think. And he brings the twelve disciples back with him as he's training them. This is an opportunity for the twelve to see how ministry is. I mean, the twelve just saw prior to Mark chapter 6, Jesus calming the storm. Jesus Christ. They, they saw this. They saw how Jesus has power and authority over nature itself. He's, Jesus demonstrated that he is the creator. They also saw Jesus cast out demons from the demoniac. They go to the Gentile side. This crazy man comes onto the beach and Jesus casts out the many demons into the herd of pigs and they go into the, into the water. They see this demoniac healed in his right mind and he starts to evangelize his people. Wow. The twelve then get back on the boat and go back to the Jewish side and they see Jesus heal the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and proclaim, sir, your faith has saved you, my daughter. Go in peace. Then Jairus, the synagogue official, his daughter is dying and she ends up dying and she, the 12 are able to see that Jesus raised her from the dead. Um, this is quite an expedition that they, they've been on. But the Lord is preparing the 12 to be sent out pretty soon. After this portion of scripture, the 12 will be sent out to the world. And so they've had a glorious view of ministry. Wow, ministry is pretty neat. It's great. People are healed. People come to Christ. They respond to to teaching and preaching. Wow, this is great. Who doesn't want to do this? Well, the Lord in his wisdom and his in his providence, bring the 12 to his hometown of Nazareth. So if you're able to, let's rise and let's read Mark 6, 1 through 6 together. And, and I would highly recommend that you open up your Bibles or follow along minimally in your apps. It's so much easier to follow the sermon because basically, in essence, the preachers that come up here usually go verse by verse by verse. And this is basically your outline. Although we put up some points on the overhead, the outline is really the Bible. Okay, Mark 6, 1 through 6. 
Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown. His disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to him, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Verse 6, And he wondered at their unbelief. And he, and he was going around the villages teaching. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this time to preach Mark 6. I pray that your spirit would Allow me to preach with power. I pray your spirit would embed these truths about your son deep into our hearts so that we will love him more. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. For the disciples, Jesus perhaps told them, we're going to go to Nazareth now. And maybe they had this whole expectation of, wow, it's been pretty amazing. Life's been, life and ministry has been pretty powerful. We've been impactful to everyone that's been around us. So perhaps as he says, let's go back home to Nazareth, maybe they're thinking this is a layup assignment where, of course, they're going to respond to you, Jesus. This is your people. These people know you. They, they love you. They trained you. They, they helped you along the way. They knew you as a child, right? So they traveled roughly 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. And they get to Nazareth. Nazareth at the time, experts would say, was about 500 people living there. It's a small place. The beauty of small places is that you get to know each other. The hard things of small places, you get to know each other. (laughs) Right? You get to know each other's dirty laundry in some ways. Although Jesus never had any dirty laundry, there were some things that were said about him underground. And Nazareth was not a significant place. Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. Josephus, the historian, never mentions Nazareth. It's not even mentioned in any rabbinic writings. So Nazareth was not a place that was known. So now the 12 disciples are riding high, thinking, man, ministry is amazing. We're impacting the world. And then in some ways, they're brought crashing down as they see the hard side of the ministry where they encounter unbelief. Unbelief. Unbelief is what's hard for ministers. Of course, we get charged up when one person comes to Christ or there's a, there's a sign of repentance. You see people growing in Christ. That's encouraging. That kind of gives you gasoline to keep going. But more often than not, we're confronted with unbelief. I mean, this is what ministry is like. So the first point here, the first point that the 12 disciples saw that Jesus' homecoming was marred, marked by astonished minds. Astonished minds. Turn with me to verse 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. This is what Jesus Christ did. He taught. And, and, and when they heard he's coming to town, they gave him the opportunity. They gave him the pulpit. And they were astonished. And this is the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? These truths, these, these statements that he's talking about, these claims. 
And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as he's performed by his hands. Astonished. The word picture is that he, they were out of their minds. This is, it's incredible. This is amazing. These people were sitting there many years in the synagogue and thinking, I've never heard teaching like this before. In Mark 1, when Jesus teaches, it says that he taught with authority, not like the scribes and rabbis. He, Jesus Christ taught with authority. And they recognized that there was something different about Jesus. This is not the usual Sabbath day for them. They're blown away. And as a preacher, as a growing preacher myself, I always want to know what made Jesus is preaching so powerful. Right now, as I finish my last semester in our in my program, they have us reading sermons from church history, from the early church fathers to even to the last 200 years and everything in between. Some good and not so good examples. And they have us reading examples from great preachers like Calvin, Luther, Whitfield, Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones. I mean, the great preachers of our time. And like, wow, this is what powerful preaching looks like. But the 12, they had even a better opportunity than I do. They, they got to see the greatest preacher live. And, and, and as they looked and sat under Jesus' preaching, what kind of preaching did Jesus show? I mean, what was he teaching the disciples? After all, this is a teaching tour, and as he's trying to raise up his disciples, Luke four sixteen to 22 gives us a glimpse of what Jesus was like as a preacher. And, and this is, this gives us an account of his first time preaching in Nazareth. This is the, so this is his second visit as far as we know. Luke 4, just turn to your right, to the next book, Luke 4, 16 to 22. Jesus is handed the scrolls. And this is what was typical in the synagogue. They didn't have a book. They have scrolls of the Old Testament. And they were, he was given the book of Isaiah. And Jesus, whether that was the assigned portion providentially or he opens up the scroll to Isaiah 61. They didn't have verses back then, but Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 is what he read. Let me just read this for us. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. This is out of Luke. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Right here, Jesus models for the disciples what faithful, powerful preaching looks like. He opens up the scroll or opens up the word of God like we do. We open up our Bibles and we, he read out of Isaiah 61. This is what preaching starts off. It starts with the word of God. And then what does he do next? He explained what the meaning of the scripture was, the author's intent. What did what was Isaiah talking about? And then verse 21, after closing the book, he gave it back to the attendant, sat down and with all eyes on him in the synagogue were fixed on him, verse 21, and he began to say to them, he explains the scriptures right there, right, there, right here. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This was a messianic prophecy in Isaiah 61. In other words, he's basically saying, I'm the Messiah. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. He explains, he reads the scriptures and explains that he is the Messiah. And he goes on to exhort them 
later on. So what does faithful preaching look like to the, uh, to the 12 apostles? You read the scriptures and you explain the scriptures and you exhort with the scriptures. This is what Jesus would go on to do to the point where they wanted to throw him off the cliff. I mean, the first time didn't go well either. They wanted to throw him off the cliff in Nazareth. Yet Jesus was willing to go back a second time. And so when it says that these people, these many people back to Mark, were astonished, they were amazed, they were impressed, they heard the amazing preaching of Christ, but they couldn't hear. They saw Jesus with their eyes, but they couldn't see who was speaking to them. I mean, Ezekiel 12 puts it well and says, You live in the midst of rebellious house, this house who has eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Talking about Israel. And Nazareth was just like this. Their hearts were so hardened that they couldn't see what they were seeing. They couldn't even understand what they were hearing. They're amazed, though, in their minds they understood there is something different about this preaching. And I think the 12 were getting a lesson here. What they're understanding what is the goal of preaching? This is important for us to understand because as we even engage week after week, what is the goal of preaching? It's not only to astonish the intellect, like, wow, that's some deep things that was preached today. It's not only to be moved emotionally. It's not, these aren't wrong things, but th- this is not merely just to move people emotionally. It's not just for you to leave, man, convicted. I feel convicted of my sin. All right? It's so that you would believe. You, it's so that you will believe. And this is what the centerpiece of Christianity is about, that we would believe. John 14, 1 says that believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus says. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's all about believing in Jesus Christ. This is what the point of preaching is about. Not only to teach us, not only to educate us, it's so that what is taught in our minds would spill over into our hearts that we would believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. This is the reason why we preach. Sadly, for these people, their minds were just overflowing, but none of this spilled over into their hearts. And so for a point of application, this is important now. As you notice how I prayed, I prayed that the Spirit will allow me to preach but also, I pray that the Spirit allows us to understand the words and for these words to be implanted into our hearts. That preaching is a two-way street. I mean, we understand this. It's more than just a speaker. The listener has his or her part in it as well. So you could miss it. You could leave with a bunch of information. You could leave a lot of good notes. But it doesn't actually travel into your hearts. And so there's some things that we could do you know, and I could address the parents and husbands, but also just for yourselves. What can you do to prepare yourself to receive the word every Sunday? Every Lord's Day, we spend about 40, 45, sometimes 50 minutes on preaching. How can you actually benefit from that? Well, number one, here's some just practical helps. Read and meditate upon the text that's going to be preached. Read Mark 6, 1 through 6. If you have more time, read around it as well. Just read what's going to be preached. 
Our staff does a good job of pumping out the information on Thursday. You should get an email. If you're not on the plug-in, please ask, and we could get you uh, get your email sent. And we tell you who's preaching, even the sermon title, and what is the scripture to be preached. Read it. Meditate upon it. Prepare your heart to hear Mark 6, 1 through 6 throughout the week. Number two, pray for the preacher. All right, this may sound like a self-serving request, but pray for me, pray for other preachers. There's a lot of things going on that could get us distracted from preaching. There's a lot of things that go along in our personal lives and just in ministry life. Pray for the preachers. Pray that we would be faithful to study the scriptures under the power of the Holy Spirit and to rightly understand the Bible. Pray that we would be faithful to do this. And number three, pray for soft hearts to receive the word. Pray for yourself. Pray for the whole church. Pray for even globally that the word of God will be preached and Christians will be able to receive the word. So read, pray for the preacher, and pray for yourselves that these things would happen. Okay? Some helpful applications. Now, but the disciples would see that this is all head knowledge. This is, what, this is all head knowledge. They're moved, they're excited, but there's something missing. And the 12 saw that Jesus' homecoming was marked by offended hearts. Point number two, offended hearts. The astonishment didn't lead towards an affection towards Christ. The astonishment led to offense towards Christ. Let, let me read verse three again. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Offense. Scandalizo. They are scandalized. Jesus was a point of stumbling for him, for them. Although they understood what he was saying, they were stumbling over Jesus Christ. Therefore, they resorted to a logical fallacy where they start a smear campaign against Jesus. They're saying, isn't this the carpenter? Tecton, carpenter simply means builder. And in Nazareth, that area, there aren't many trees. There are some trees, but they're small. So Tecton, Jesus could have been a builder, a, a contractor, worked with stone, worked with wood, building things. Jesus was a builder. Jesus was a blue collar man. And this was not looked down upon in that day. This was not like, okay, he's just a blue-collar worker. But the idea is, isn't he just like us? How does he have this elevated knowledge? Did he go to the, the seminary? Was he properly trained? So they're attacking his background. He's just like us. How could he say these things? And it gets worse now when he says, isn't, he this, isn't this the son of Mary? Now, on the surface, it doesn't seem like much, but in the Jewish culture, you're known through your dad, your father. The appropriate way would have been, is this the son of Joseph? And Matthew says that. But Mark specifically writes, the son of Mary. What comes to mind of why this might be an insult or an attack upon the Lord? That's right. There could have been a long-standing rumor how Jesus came. Right? And this isn't Joseph's son. This is Mary's son. And in other, word, in other words, they're saying, Jesus, we don't even know who your daddy is. Or you're the product of immorality. I mean, these are the sort of things that 
they were doing. In other words, they were saying, who are you to tell us about our sin? Who are you to tell us about being our Savior? You're the product of sin. And you're going to save us? So they're basically attacking them, saying, hey, we know who you are. We've got to dismiss everything that you're saying. So therefore, they couldn't accept what he was saying. And the 12, what would you do if you're the 12, one of the 12, you would notice this real quickly. Like, Jesus is the issue. It's not necessarily his ability to teach and preach. It's not his miracles. They like all that. It's not his wisdom. The master is the issue. Jesus is the issue. And they notice that Jesus is a stumbling block and they can't get by him. And look what the Lord says. The Lord knows what's on their hearts. The Lord has one statement in this portion. Jesus said to them, A prophet, verse 4, is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. What is he saying? What is he saying? A prophet has honor everywhere else except his hometown. It's that proverbial saying, familiarity breeds contempt. I remember when I was a... um, volunteered and administrative assistant as a young coach at USC. I remember uh, one of the prominent coaches telling me, hey, Rocky, you know, he meant well, and he was trying to encourage me. I just want to let you know, you have to go and come back and, and for, for them to take you seriously. What do you mean? What do you mean? Aren't I doing a good job? Yeah, you do a good job, but the people see you as Rocky still. They see you as the, the, the undergrad. They see you as the walk-on. They see you as the volunteer. You need to go make a name for yourself and come back, and then they'll take you more seriously. I knew what he was saying because I felt those things, and he pretty much identified my insecurities. He goes, you know what? You're right. I think you're right. I ended up staying there 13 years, but I understood. Even as as I ascended in my roles, I still felt that in the back of my head. So when you go and you come back, you come with a different level of credibility. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, they know me. They know who I am. They know how I grew up. They know my family. They know my family situation. They know my dad. They knew my mom. They know exactly how I grew up. But what the hard thing is this. Not only is it with the townspeople, it's his relatives, he says. He has no honor with his relatives. He has no honor even with his own household. That's his own brothers and sisters. That's difficult. It's one thing to be doubted by people down the block, but it's another thing to be doubted from people within your house. I mean, the, it was hard. It was hard, and the message of Christ is offensive. It was offensive. People, even in that day, people probably love to hear about the love and mercy of God. This is what we like to hear, don't we? God is loving. God is merciful. That's an easy message to say. We like to talk about God's morality, Jesus' morality and wisdom. We like to talk about his forgiveness and the abundant life that he gives. But the message of Christ is offensive. We don't want to be overly offensive, but it is offensive. And think about it. In a pluralistic society where everyone's ideas seem to have validity, Jesus makes an exclusive claim, right? Does he not? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the only way to salvation. That's offensive to many people today. I mean, we live in an individualistic mindset where I'm the captain of my ship. I will direct my life. Well, Jesus says, 
I am the Lord of your life. You need to surrender. You need to die to yourself and follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. That's an offensive message. What? You mean I, I can't, I don't live for myself anymore? Those are offensive messages. In a humanistic culture where self-esteem is promoted, Jesus says, you're all sinners and, I'll, and you all need forgiveness. That's offensive. What do you mean? I'm a good person. No, you're not. Not according to Jesus' standard, perfect standard. And the key to this is this. If you reject Jesus Christ like his townspeople did in that day, up until that point, perhaps others will come to know him, you reject God. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you accept me, you believe me, you believe in, in the Father, right? As a point of application, I think to myself, you know, I've been asked multiple times since what happened in Monterey Park. Perhaps you have been too. You know, and whether you grew up in Monterey Park or just the, just the topic itself, have people come to talk to you, friends and relatives? Sometimes it could be harder as you talk to friends and relatives about Christ. A couple of theories that I have. One, you love them the most. You care about them the most. And two, you might have to live with them as well, right? I mean, these aren't strangers that you talk to, and if they reject you, you just walk away and just pray for them and you move on. Some of these people who are asking you to make sense of what happened, maybe your own friends, your children, your relatives, your husband, your, your wife, coworkers, right? What are you going to tell them? What are you going to tell them? Well, I mean, evidently, we're called to talk about Christ. Do you give them the gospel? And we know the gospel is two parts. Good news, certainly because of the bad news. Do you give them the bad news? It is offensive to talk about sin and judgment. It is, it is hard to say, you need to repent. You need to stop that and give your life to Jesus Christ. Right? That, that is offensive. Yet, the hope of the gospel says, but Christ will forgive you of your sins. Christ will give you hope and eternal life. I remember speaking at different outreach events, and I remember people around me talking to me about, why do you have to mention hell? Do you have to say that? I mean, that, that's kind of offensive to these people. And I'm thinking to myself, why am I here, here, right? And so I don't think we need to be overly offensive, but the message done rightly in love can be offensive. And in some ways, it, it offends. It offends the person. And hopefully that offense draws us to Christ. Jesus demands our lives. And this is more than salvation. Jesus is saying, I will save you unto me. Right? It's not just, I save you unto yourself. I save you unto me. So this is the whole message of Christ. Finally, third point here. The, the twelve saw that Jesus' homecoming was marked by wondrous unbelief. Wondrous unbelief. Verse 5 says this, And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. He could do no miracles. I had to study this somewhat. What is that talking about? Does that mean that Jesus' power is dependent upon somebody else? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Jesus could do whatever he wants. He is sovereign. We talked about that earlier in the service. God, Jesus Christ, is sovereign. He's in control of all things. That's not the issue. I mean, he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. She had no faith at that point. She, he, she was raised to life just prior to this scene. But we have to remember the purpose of miracles. Why did miracles take place 
in the time of Christ and the apostles. Why did it, why did it take place? Well, number one, it was to authenticate that Jesus is the Messiah, to say he is the anointed one, to say that he is the savior of the world. It's also to authenticate his teaching and preaching. So if the Lord knew that these were hardened hearts, he wasn't going to waste his time doing miracles. And this goes to show you that Jesus was not interested in gathering crowds. Jesus wasn't interested in um, impressing people. Jesus was here to preach about the good news of himself. And, but it goes on to say in verse 6, and he wondered at their unbelief. Another puzzling statement, was Jesus surprised that they didn't believe? Absolutely not. Of course he knows all things. He's the one who's part, who he's elected us from eternity past. He knows. He's foreknew everything. He's not surprised. Perhaps he was disappointed at their unbelief. Perhaps he was bewildered at, just like you and I would be, just like the disciples were. How could they not believe? How could they turn on him so much? Even when in the Gentile lands, people are coming to trust in him. How could they turn their back on their own son, right? I mean, the 12 must have wondered to themselves too. These people are so familiar with him. They know him. They're exposed to the best preaching of all time. How could they deny him? The townsville, they knew him as a child. They saw him scrape his knee and his mother bandaged him up. He knew that. They saw him cry for his mother. How could they turn on him? I mean, even his brothers and sisters, think about that. He was the perfect big brother. I wasn't the perfect big brother. I know that. None of us were the perfect big brother or big sister. He was actually the one and only perfect big brother, right? He never sinned. He never sinned. He was perfect. Yet they don't believe him? How's that even possible? As I thought about this, how, how close to home this must have felt, I couldn't help but think about our, some of our parents in our church. You may have wondered as well at the unbelief around you. I mean, you, you may have thought to yourself or even prayed to God, I've lived genuinely a genuine Christian life. Not perfect, but genuine Christian life. I was active in teaching my son the Bible. I made the Lord's Day a top priority. We made sure to attend church every Lord's Day. I've surrounded him with godly Christian influences. I even sent him to Christian school or even homeschooled them. But they're not in Christ as adults. Why? They love other things more than God. When I talk to them about Christ, they don't even care. They look uninterested or even irritated. I thought about this. This must have been hard for the Lord too as he was rejected. I hope this gives you some level of comfort because I think the 12 were getting a lesson. I think we're all getting a lesson through the 12. The 12 were getting a lesson on what it looks like to farm hard soil. I mean, I see missionaries out here. There's hard soil. I see people who been raising their children. There's hard soil trying to evangelize their husbands. Hard soil. I know that you've been working hard soil. Look what the disciples are learning. Simply be faithful. Be faithful to minister Christ and trust in God to do the growing. 
This is what we're learning here. Even Jesus Christ is trusting the plan by just simply preaching himself to the people of his hometown and the 12 disciples are able to see this. I think this was just as much for the 12 as it was for the people there. And so what are we learning here? What are we learning here about how to be a faithful brother or Christian here? Number one, I think we see that Jesus is rejected. I mean, he was a perfect example. Certainly none of us are perfect parents or perfect disciples. I get that. Also, he was the perfect teacher. I mean, they had the best. <laughs> they had no excuses. They had a clear picture of God. That should serve as a certain level of encouragement for, for us. Number two, let's keep witnessing to your prodigals. Keep talking about Christ. They've gone wayward. They're adult children. They're living sinful lives. Keep when praying for their souls. Keep being faithful to the, to the call of discipleship. Obviously, use wisdom and opportunities to preach the gospel. Right? I mean, God opens up the opportunity. You take it. Preach Christ to your children. Your spouse even. I mean, your spouse may be attending church every week with you, but you know in your heart they're not a Christian. Keep preaching to them. Keep winning them over with your good behavior, as Peter says. Perhaps you're, you're witnessing to your aging parents. I know what that's like. Keep loving them well. Keep uh, Look for an opportunity to, sne- to, to bring in the gospel message. Keep praying for their souls. Remember, God is the author of our stories, and we don't know how the story ends. I mean, even with these talked about here, I, I, I see James and Judas. I mean, James and Judas, the brothers of Jesus Christ mentioned here. James becomes the head of the Jerusalem church. James writes the book of James. Did he become a believer? You bet he did. Judas perhaps even wrote the book of Jude. I mean, you don't know how this is going to end. The disciples didn't know how this is going to end. But nonetheless, Jesus himself was faithful to preach the good news. And later on, Acts says his mother and his brothers show up. So perhaps all of them came to Christ. All of them became believers. I just want one final encouragement here as we conclude this portion here. There's one question I want to ask, and maybe to three separate categories of people in this, in this assembly right now. Hopefully I hit you, and, but the three specific groups of people I'm thinking about. And this one question applies to everyone in here. What kind of reception is Jesus getting from you today right now? As he's making his homecoming with you, does he feel at home with you? What kind of reception is he getting from you right now? Are you giving him a warm embrace? And you're saying, yes, Lord, I I love hearing from you. Yes, Lord, I do love you. Not perfectly, but I love you. Yes, Lord, I trust you. Yes, Lord, because of you, I have hope. Yes, Lord, I want to embrace you. Your, your, Your love is red hot for him. Praise God. I want to encourage you in that. Keep fanning that flame. Keep feeding your soul the word of God. Keep being more excited. Keep understanding and learning more what who your Savior is. 
Perhaps as I ask that question, what kind of reception has Jesus gotten from you today? Perhaps you're cold towards him. You are offended right now. Maybe. And right now you're saying, what do you mean he's the only way of salvation? How arrogant is that? Well, it's not my claim. It's what the Bible says. It's what Jesus claims. What do you mean I'm a sinner? I'm a good person. No, you're not, the Bible says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Maybe you're offended. In some ways, I'm encouraged because you do have a reaction. And maybe this sermon is causing you to think about your soul right now. But the third group is the group I'm going to spend most of the time on right now. What kind of reception has Jesus gotten from you today? This third group is the group I'm most concerned about. This is the lukewarm group. Like as you hear this, you're completely indifferent. You're completely indifferent to Christ. You're completely indifferent to his word. This is so familiar to you. I've heard this before. I know who Jesus is. I've heard this. Give me something new. Give me something more practical. Give me something that helped me in my workplace. And this is, you're just kind of like, all right, when can I get to lunch? I think the greatest warning comes to this group here. And if this is you, I humbly say this. The more your heart gets used to being indifferent to Christ, the harder it's getting. Because you're used to just hearing truth and being okay with it. You're used to hearing a fire alarm in the background and you just stay in the room. You're used to hearing this and you keep dismissing the truth. Your heart gets more callous. Your hearing gets more dull. Your eyes get more dim. And you're starting to sink into the spiritual quicksand more and more. I'm most worried about this group. Children and youth. Children and youth. We have everybody here, praise God. You grew up in a Christian home. Your parents bring you here. Perhaps there's one or two that comes alone, but you, pretty much you grew up in a Christian home. I talk to this about my children all the time. And there's a great warning when you're a second, third, fourth, fifth generation Christian. The first generation guy wants to come to Christ. There is no external pressure from their parents. I wanted to come to Christ. It made sense. But the second generation, like my own children, on down, it's a big warning because you could learn to live the Christian life and live with Christian people and act a Christian way, say the Christian thing, hold a Christian Bible, go to a Christian school, and never be a Christian. That's terrifying to me. And when you hear the Word of God, it's just like you're lukewarm, you're indifferent to it. Children, youth particularly, listen up. Listen to your mothers. Listen to the preaching of the word. Come ready to hear God's word preached. You need to respond if you want to be in Christ. You cannot be indifferent to Christ. You cannot be lukewarm to Christ. Jesus said, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is his own words. If you're lukewarm towards him. There is no middle ground. You're either hot for him or you're not. And in the the middle ground, is saying that you're not. Young people, tomorrow is guaranteed to nobody. Evidenced by Monterey Park, evidenced by, I hear children dying at a local school recently. 
I'm going to speak to in the same category. Maybe you've been sitting in the pews for years. Perhaps even Evergreen has been your church home for years, decades. And your wife keeps urging you to trust in Christ. But you're spiritually asleep. You could care less. You're more worried about what's happening in, in the football game. You care more about your retirement fund. You care more about your work. You care about golf game more than anything else. You don't care. I mean, deep inside, your wife knows that you're not a believer. She may go along with it, not to be overly judgmental, but she knows that you're not in Christ. And you hear preaching, you hear faithful preaching week after week after week, yet you never think about it afterwards. You never want to engage with your children about this. You never want to engage with your wife about this. Jesus again? Why do you keep talking about Jesus? I actually heard this from somebody in our church at one time. I like how you're preaching about Jesus, but maybe too much. Is that you? Is that you? Is Jesus wondering right now and mystified at your unbelief? You've been exposed to so much truth. You've been surrounded by loving brothers and sisters. Is that who you are? The good news is this. If this has message has pricked your heart, what a great opportunity to turn to him now. What a great opportunity to say, yes, Lord, I am lukewarm. Yes, Lord, I have been indifferent. Yes, Lord, I have loved and been more passionate about other things and other people than you. What a great opportunity because the Lord is knocking at the door. Opportunity knocks right now. God says, Jesus says, I knock at the door of your heart. And whoever opens the door, I will come and dine with him. What a great opportunity to repent. Jesus says, I'm I'm lowly and meek. I'm humble and gentle. He's not going to punish you. He's going to receive you back with open arms like the prodigal father. Won't you give your life to Christ and get serious about him today, right now? There's no room for indifference. As, is, as what's happened in the days and, and months just prior to this sermon, it's just so becoming more and more clear to me. The days are numbered. And all the things that seem to matter, which they do, don't matter compared to knowing Jesus Christ. If you're that person who's lukewarm, just know I say this out of love. I care. I'm pleading for your soul right now. I'm pleading, I'm begging you to consider Christ, to consider if you are truly in the faith. I I am. And if you've been a faithful minister, whether interpersonally or in a vocational love, keep being faithful. My seminary professor, one of them, Joel Beakey, said, a preacher, someone who proclaims God's word, never has to question if his life ever counted. Every time you get to preach Christ to somebody, know that it matters. Whether it falls on hard soil or good soil, the Lord sees. And the Lord knows. And the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that what we want to hear in the end? So I'm just grateful for the opportunity to preach this portion. 
This homecoming was a different type of homecoming. I pray that the homecoming that the Lord has within your own hearts is a celebration right now. I pray that he feels welcome. He feels excited. He feels embraced within your hearts right now. And perhaps you've just been woken up out of your couch now through the preaching of the word. And you're opening up the door, eager to see who's at the door. Open the door today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that, Jesus, you are faithful to preach the good news in Nazareth, your hometown. Thank you even in the face of opposition, Lord Jesus. You were able to just be faithful to proclaim the good news. Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you that you have given us the exclusive key to the heavens. How the gates of heaven have been opened up wide open for us to walk through because of you. Thank you that you are gentle. Thank you that you are loving and you receive all who would call upon your name as Lord and Savior. Father, I plead for those right now who've been lukewarm. I pray, Lord, that you turn up the stove in their lives and that you put on the heat. They will start boiling hot for you, Lord. I pray that you wake them up from their spiritual slumber. I pray, Lord, that you give them eyes to see. I pray that you give them a spiritual hearing aid so they could hear you clearly today. And they will see you, Jesus, that you are God, you are the Savior of the world. As James says, that you are the Lord, you are his God. I pray, Lord, that we would say this. I pray, Lord, that they will, these men and women will turn their lives, any youth, any children, will, their hearts will be pricked knowing that they've been lukewarm. They will give their lives to you. They would repent of their sins, repent of, the, of their lukewarmness, and give their lives to you. Father, I pray for encouragement for those who genuinely love you. I see so many faces out here who genuinely love you. And what an encouragement it is to preach to such an assembly. I pray for more encouragement. I pray for more heat. I pray for more goodness. More grace poured out from the throne of grace to be poured upon our heads so that we will love you more. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and love to us, Lord Jesus. Oh, what a Savior. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.